The world is wrong. Hello, Drodgeheads, and welcome back to the Drodgecast. This week it's the letter B. And we're in the middle of October now, so we're well into the autumn. And autumn's one of my favourite times of year. It's just after the summer, which is a very fun, exciting time. And I love the autumnal colours and those days that you get where it's not always the best weather necessarily in autumn, but those days you get where it's not too hot, it's not too cold, there's a bit of a breeze and you can take a nice long walk and crunch through the leaves. And autumn's a really good time of year for reflection and for reconnecting with yourself and perhaps advancing your ideas about things through that process. And what a better thing to focus on this week then, at this time of year, than the brain. This week, the letter B is B is for brains. Recently, I've been reading up on quantum physics and the theory of relativity, which to a creative uh, science-phobic person like myself, it's quite a leap forward. When I was a kid, the idea of this would have just made me vomit up my insides. And I remember that I was in GCSEs and I had to be bribed by my mum to get a good grade because I was in real risk of failing. So, So she said, I will give you some money if you get a C grade. And the passing grade to get a C was 50%. And I got exactly 50%. I may not have been good, but I was at least efficient. And I think what's happening with gender and sex and culture currently is what arguably happened in culture when Einstein came up with his theory of relativity. Now, according to the site Britannica, Einstein's special theory of relativity was a statement of the realization that we were wrong up to that point and that when talking about distances in space and time, these are actually relative to one another. They change depending on how fast you're moving. And this theory completely changed the concept of what time was regarded as and obliterated thousands of years of work and research and understanding, shook the very core of our society. Because the question then is, what are we if time is not linear easily measured fixed constant dependable it's such a big part of the way we understand the world and understand ourselves if it's not linear if it's relative then what are we and the same question i feel is urgently true of gender and sex remember russell brand being a guest on the late late show in america when craig ferguson hosted it and craig said i'm sorry to see this russell but we're out of time and russell quit back time is a construct time is limitless we're never out of time And it's a throwaway, silly, mischievous joke, but it's true. Time is fluid, is experienced differently on an individual basis, and is ultimately not capturable, though we use measurements and systems to keep track of where we are, that we have labelled time, that we put it inside watches and, and clocks. This makes me think of an experiment done in the 1970s, which was talked about on the Blind Boy podcast, which is one of my absolute favourite podcasts. If you want an easy, funny introduction to the crazy world of quantum physics, then go and listen to Blind Boy's episode, Quantum Quarantino, from March 2020. The quantum physicist Blind Boy interviews Dr. Michael Brooks, talks about a study that was conducted where a clock was bought a ticket for Mr. Clock genuinely happened on a commercial airline in the 70s and this clock mr clock was flown across the world at the other end it was found that the clock had experienced time in a slightly different way to everyone else down on earth that time had moved faster while it was sat on the plane which correlates with einstein's theory of relativity that experience of time changes dependent on how fast you're moving that it is relative which fragments our understanding of time as fixed and linear to me The same framework of unpacking a massive but loose structure at the heart of our society and understanding of ourselves needs to be applied to gender and applied urgently. And to start to talk about gender and look into what it is and how it works, we have to lay the ground rules. Where does it come from? The body or the mind? 
nature or nurture? Is it something fixed in our natural environment or something we humans have concocted for our own amusement? So the brain is part of the body and the body is part of the brain. So you could really start with either and I suppose my choice perhaps betrays my underlying bias or pre-existing ideas around where gender comes from. And I'll own that, I'll acknowledge it at the entrance to this podcast. And if the brain is part of the body, can the brain be really regarded as separate? Should we be looking not at whether brains are gendered, but whether knees are gendered. You don't have gendered knees, really. Those are anatomically different based on what sex you are and what kind of body type you have. Okay then, how are brains different? Uh, maybe brains are really like knees. But then, are they gendered also if a knee cannot be gendered? Maybe knees are the most gendered things there are. Can you really tell me you've never looked at a pair of knees and gone, what a woman, what a man those knees must hold up. What a confusing set of knees. I have no idea what gender this person is from looking at their knees. There's a lot to consider. Knees. All that being said, I choose to start with the brain. So the mind, or at least the cortex, is the so-called human element of the brain. The most recent addition, evolutionarily speaking, to the ineffable thought sack we call a brain. Now, for the purposes of trying to avoid confusion, we'll refer to the brain as the organ, the thinking device, and the mind as the sense of self that we have within our brains. That might still be confusing, but come on, you better strap in everyone, because this is a ride into the depths of the most confusing thing known to humanity. The brain. If brains are gendered, are male and female brains like two separate chemicals, perhaps? Manium and womanium, that are clearly defined and different, and, I don't know, explode on contact with each other? Or are they both present in either brain? Or do they not exist at all? Are there other differences which are common in both male and female brains, therefore making differences not a matter of gender or sex, but of something else entirely? Are there not even male and or female brains? Are there just brains? Individual brains? Whatever it is, we have to be forensic with how we look at things. It's not enough to say, as I heard recently when chatting with one of my sisters, something she's heard said that women like people, stories, so that's why they're really into true crime podcasts. Men, on the other hand, like facts. But in the case of women flocking to true crime podcasts, this is actually, as my sister cleverly pointed out, a fear-led practical attempt at self-defense, spotting up on how they might be preyed upon by potential attackers in the night. So, in fact, it's women who seem to like facts here because they will be necessary in protecting them as they feel highly vulnerable returning home at night and understandably so in the society that we unfortunately still live in. So saying women like people and men like facts and finding something on the surface that makes sense in line with this, like, oh, they listen to a podcast about what people do, doesn't actually critically assess the evidence surrounding that fact. It doesn't, if you will, take into account the gender soup in which that fact is floating. And that's what makes it so hard to talk about gender and how it affects us, because we exist within a thick gender soup. Or, to put it in the language of an intelligent person, in the words of philosopher and UK parliamentarian John Stuart Mill, it cannot be said that anyone knows or can know the nature of the two sexes as long as they have only been seen in their present relation to one another. But, do I believe in genderless brains? Because my brain has become infected with gender diversity, and so I can only conceive of gender as a lie? Is there actual hard scientific evidence at all of gender being present in our brains? When looking at the makeup of the brain, it can most basically be broken down into three parts, into a triune system. Though, as Dr. Robert Sapowski of Stanford University says, it doesn't really come in three layers. It is intensely complicated and interconnected with its core parts being multifunctional depending on how they interact with each other. And neuroscience, the study of brains, it is important to note at the very top of this episode, still a very young science, but 
We humans seem to love compartmentalization. We like blocks and clumps and labels. So for the purposes of having a conversation about the brain and beginning to understand it, we can look at the brain as being made up of the reptilian layer, the mammalian or limbic layer, and the cortex layer. First up, the reptilian. This is the most ancient part. It is essentially wired or made up of the same parts as a lizard's brain. It controls body responses, the regulation of hormones, the response to sweat when your body temperature heats up, for example. Second, on top of the reptilian part, is the limbic system, the quote-unquote emotional center. It's known also as the mammalian part as the presence of emotions are linked to mammals. Lizards aren't that famous for emotions, you know. So it's the part that is concerned with your fears, the fear of an approaching predator, is concerned with sexual desire, with anger, with going into battle against a rival in the herd. Mammals, we also know, like a good laugh. And third, you've got the cortex. This is present a little in all animals, but once you get to primates is where it is more present and then in humans, especially so. The way Dr. Sapowski breaks this all down, and I'm using some of his examples here, is that if you think of these parts in terms of layers and how they interrelate, the reptilian part is not concerned with emotion. So when you get cut, for example, you would not respond with an ow or cry if you're a reptile. Your body would react purely on a functional basis of responding to the affected area, like a mechanic fixing a car or a computer solving a problem. If you're a mammal, if you have the mammalian brain parts, then your emotions would drive your response more. You might lash out in defense or cry out in pain. If you take the case of a mammal sensing a nearby predator, the emotional response of fear would kick in through the mammalian part of the brain, triggering a response in the level below, as it were in the reptilian part, which would cause your heart to beat faster. So that change hasn't happened because your body necessitated it on a purely physical level, as in you heated up because of a change in temperature and started to sweat. But the changes happened because you emotionally reacted to a perceived change in your environment, causing your heart rate to go up and likely causing you to sweat also. So translate this process into the influence of the cortex, and it doesn't even have to be an actual predator approaching. It could be the sight of a lion leaping towards you on a film screen, or the thought of one even. Not a real lion, not a real predator, a lion made of pixels, a lion in your imagination. But you may feel scared or excited, which is an intellectual response that then triggers an emotional response, which could then trigger a bodily response. Similarly, your cortex may bypass the mammalian part entirely and trigger a direct response in the reptilian center. You think about your mortality, for example. Your heart might st start beating faster. To a reptile, this would make no sense. Why? Did the temperature around me change? Did my body experience a hormonal change? Why, why is my heart beating faster? Whereas to a human, it's totally rational because you are thinking about dying, thinking about your heart itself even, so your heart joins in the thought as far as you're concerned. But the bodily response of your heart beating faster is not, evolutionarily speaking, what it was designed for to affect some regulation of your body because of a physical change within or around you. It's just because you're a human and you don't like the idea of being mortal. So. This is important to note because with in human beings and our brains, there's so much extra baggage and complication to think about. So many layers. And when we apply it to gender, it can get especially messy. The longest standing theory on gender and the brain is that males and females are different physically, therefore they are different mentally and should be treated as such socially. Whether it's the size and shape of your head or the size and shape of what's inside your head, as we'll discover in this podcast, Everything has been thrust under the microscope at one point as proof of fundamental male-female brain differences. The prevailing argument carrying the torch for this idea today in the world of neuroscience is the brain organization theory. The brain organization theory asserts that hormonal influence from as early as when the male or female child is inside the womb determines the growth of their brain, leading it to either become a male or female brain. So that's what we'll be looking into this week. Brains, 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 brains. How and where is gender present in them? 
Is it there at all? Are people who believe in gender brains the flat earthers of the 21st century believing gender is flat, either there or over here, whereas it's actually round and cyclical? Or are gender deniers and, bunk and debunkers like myself simply grasping for something we wish was there, but isn't in reality? You may have seen an article online or in a newspaper when those existed claiming men and women are born to be different as experts prove differences begin in the womb. That's a March 2019 article from The Sun in which, amongst other claims, Professor Mariah Thomason of New York Langone University says that there are many differences in the organisation of male and female brains. That's what I would expect. In a February 2019 interview with The Guardian, Cognitive neuroscientist Gina Rippon brushes aside all of these claims, saying, we need to forget the male and female brain. It's inaccurate, it's a distraction. So the debate is still live, active, evolving, much like our brains, arguably. It's the works of people like Gina Rippon and Cordelia Fine, who have both been particularly a great inspiration for this podcast. Delusions of Gender, which is Fine's fine, more than fine book about gender and neuroscience, is actually what inspired me to do a podcast specifically on brains. And what inspired Cordelia to write the book is, as she lays out here, she writes, Neurosexism promotes damaging, limiting, potentially self-fulfilling stereotypes. Three years ago, I discovered my son's kindergarten teacher reading a book that claimed that his brain was incapable of forging the connection between emotion and language. And so I decided to write this book. To me, that's heartbreaking. Whether it's true or untrue. If it's true, boys are cruelly cut off from their own emotions because of their boy brains. If it's untrue, we are cruelly cutting off boys from their own emotions because we think they have boy brains and that boy brains just don't do emotion. So the binary of the debate around gender, if you can put it that simply in binary terms, is the idea that brains are predetermined and defined by sex versus the idea that brains are defined by a combination of inner and outer influences, which is nature versus nurture essentially. Psychoanalyst and psychiatrist Norman Doidge, and I swear to you, genuinely, I'm not just quoting him because his name is so wonderfully close to Drudge, but then maybe I am. In his book, The Brain That Changes Itself, he says, A brain that is hardwired leaves little room for neuroplasticity. In effect, the idea of a brain that is preloaded with gendered programs, male or female, doesn't allow much scope for looking at the brain as a living, changeable organ. The idea that a brain is hardwired is that it is predetermined to be, grow and act in a certain way. So in the context of gender, to either be, become and act as male or be, become and act as female. And what is neuroplasticity? It's the notion that the brain can grow and be shaped and change in response to experience and stimuli, that it can change itself, as Deutsch argues which I believe at this point is almost universally accepted by the scientific community. Otherwise, it begs the question, if this isn't possible, then how would the scientific community exist? Science wouldn't be able to evolve, because where else does our understanding of science come from but, well, the brain? So if we apply this idea to a human context, imagine, say, if you were out at a comedy show and you and the group of people in the audience just decided to laugh at everything the comedian was saying. And the comedian you were seeing was woefully unfunny. In fact, they were just reading out a shopping list. And this person on stage knows they're not being funny, that it wasn't intended to be funny. That being said, if you and the rest of the audience were just laughing at everything they said, they would eventually reformulate their idea and believe themselves to be inherently funny. And to me, Gender characteristics seem to be the same. If you tell somebody something enough times for long enough, 
they will not only believe that fact, but actually become it. And the brain, when viewed through the lens of neuroplasticity, works very much in the same way. When looking into the research around whether brains are gendered or not, you really have to look into the work of Gina Rippon. Her book, The Gendered Brain, is excellent in the way it itemizes and breaks down how we have reached where we are with notions of sex and gendered brains, what those implications are for society, and perhaps how we might move forward. I listened to it via BorrowBox, which if you're in the UK, I thoroughly recommend you get yourself onto. It's essentially an app that allows you to rent books and eBooks via your library and has been such a valuable resource for working on this podcast. It's important to stress also that books like The Gendered Brain that I am referencing in this podcast, they clock in at maybe 12, 13 hours total listening. Whereas this podcast is roughly an hour, so I try to pack in as much as I can, but thoroughly recognise I cannot be as thorough as I would like. So I reference them not just to tell you what sources I'm using, but also to encourage you to go and listen to them, read them for yourselves if you're interested. So, where research into brains and their supposed sex or gender characteristics began was in the 18th century, by looking at external physical factors as indicators of sex and gender. The motivation for this was not, it seems, in the pursuit of greater knowledge about how brains work, but to use as justification for a pre-existing idea that men were superior to women. And this idea seems to be the idea that has driven research into brains for the past 300 years or so, whether looking at brain weight, bumps on the head, or neuroscientific imaging of brain scans. This idea seems to still be with us today, hardwired into us to be sought out. It's been a sort of island-hopping approach to empirical research. When one theory can no longer hold water, the next most obvious landmass is found, and the search continues. Until that theory sinks into the sea of the unknown and we go on and on. Never stopping to think, it seems, that maybe it's the motivation for our search that is causing us to keep having to jump from one idea to the next. Maybe the notion we have is too heavy for any of the scientific, or let's be honest, sometimes pseudoscientific practices we have at our disposal at the moment to test whether or not there are inherent differences in brains that are in a male body and brains that are in a female body. Gina Rippon terms it in a different way. She calls the theories that move from one finding to the next in the pursuit of a persistently unprovable idea, whack-a-mole theories. Like the game whack-a-mole, you think you've beaten off the moles and they just keep coming back, another one pops up seconds later and then on and on, seemingly forever and ever. Now, it's important to note that these theories around brains and sex and or gender emerged before we even had the ability to physically examine a brain and what it does, how it works. Scientists in the 18th century would take empty human skulls and compare between the male and female skulls how much buckshot or birdseed it would take to fill either one. And at the time, this experiment brought a great sense of triumph because the male skulls were found to hold more buckshot or birdseed than the female ones. Haha! <laughs> From which the obvious conclusion is male brains are bigger and heavier, therefore better. Now, from a 21st century perspective, we, or at least some of us, know that size doesn't always matter, stop it. Certainly, in terms of brain size, a whale's brain is much bigger than a human brain. The true test seems to be how big your brain is in relation to your body size. For example, a chihuahua's brain is the largest in the dog world within this parameter, the largest brain in relation to its body size. But does that mean it is the smartest of all dogs? Like with any animal, anything, I guess it depends what you're looking for. A study by the University of Arizona in 2019 found that larger breeds of dogs had better short-term memory than smaller dogs, measured by showing a dog a treat, hiding it under one of two plastic cups, and then waiting 60, 90, 120, and 150 seconds to see whether the dog could identify the correct cup from memory. And obviously, memory, that's just one form of intelligence. So 
what you're looking for based on what you're looking at is always really important. Also, size is not always an indicator of quality. If this was true, then small hands would be worse than big hands. But of course, it depends what those hands are trying to do. One of the best piano players I've ever seen up close, who I met through working with traveling festival venue, The Magic Teapot, is a lovely, lovely woman called Jilly, and she's a tiny person with tiny hands. Yet, she moves around the keyboard as if her hands are able to stretch the full length of the piano all at once. It's quite amazing. And we know that the first computer, a giant hulking thing from the mid 20th century, is not better than the current computer about the size of an A4 piece of paper. Size does matter, but not in the way you might think it does. What the pursuit of physical differences as justification for mental differences has proved is not only that the evidence is inconclusive or plain non-existent, but that scientists with this goal in mind to prove male and female brains do exist as a concept will look for anything to prove it. That they will blame the brain, as the saying goes, for why men and women are clearly so different. I think the most hilarious example of this came to light thanks to a woman called Alice Lee, who was one of the first female University of London graduates and was working in the field of anatomy. At the time, the prevailing truth in the anatomical world of research was still that a bigger skull size denoted a bigger brain and therefore a better brain. We're talking still buckshot, birdseed, empty skulls. Lee's curiosity was piqued and she decided to conduct a little experiment. On the 10th of June, 1898, at the meeting of the Anthropologist Society at Trinity College Dublin, she decided to take the measurements of the skull sizes of those at the highest level in the field of craniology, the study of skull size. And the measurements of the old geezer skulls produced some intriguing findings. She returned to University College London and measured male students there, as well as female students at Bedford College. And she found that some of the students had larger heads even than the professors. In fact, it was found that one of the most eminent anatomists of the day had the smallest head of all those studied, professor and student alike. So therefore, obviously, you would think according to Lee's study and her findings, and by the logic of the professors themselves, their students were now confirmed as being smarter than them, right? Within 10 years of her findings being published, the field of craniology was dead. So rather than close down the university departments or swap chairs between professor and student, the research moved on to a different area of the anatomy surrounding the brain. Now they started to look for bumps or protuberances in the head instead, naturally, a form of study which came to be known as phrenology. Women at the time were encouraged to receive a phrenological reading, leading some to be relieved at the fact that their female inferiority was indeed rooted in biology and confirmable. Phew, oh, they tell us so much, those little protuberances. Look, I'm inferior and I've got the bump to prove it. As Gina Rippon would say, I guess it's time for another game of neuroscience whack-a-mole. Research then moved on to a sort of reverse engineering of how the brain works, looking at subjects who had lost a function through brain injury and thus trying to determine through the affected area what brain function it might be responsible for. There was sadly an abundance of cases at the time in the early 20th century because of the vast number of casualties throughout and after World War I. As Rippon points out, however, just because a particular skill is lost after injury to a certain part of the head, that doesn't mean it is that part alone that is responsible for that skill because the brain is an interlinked organ. It communicates within itself depending on what is trying to be achieved. In 1924, a new breakthrough emerged that allowed brain activity to be observed by the use of metal plates placed on the head that would permit the scientists to register activity and record it in real time on pieces of paper, much like you would have recorded earthquakes using a seismometer before the invention of computers. This introduced the notion of electrical activity within the brain in addition to chemical activity. The brain runs on electricity and chemicals like the body it sits inside. 
and it only takes about 20 watts on average to power the brain, which is less than the smallest average light bulb wattage. The brain is fucking nuts. It wasn't until the end of the 20th century that we actually started to be able to observe brain activity as we do now, through the use of neuroimaging, looking at scans of the brain, and identifying through which parts light up during particular tasks or activities or focuses of the human experience, how one might understand and categorize the makeup of the brain. The current prevailing understanding seems to be that there are two sides to the brain, the left, which deals with language and logic, and the right that deals with emotions and global processing. Watch out, it's that binary again. These left and right sides are united by what is known as the corpus callosum, which has been described as looking like an elongated cashew nut. According to studies into the corpus callosum itself, research has suggested that the corpus callosum is generally larger in women than in men. This has led to the assumption that this explains why women are better at, say, multitasking, and men are better at singular focus. Welcome all anyone. Because obviously, if you are better able to bridge the two sides of the brain and therefore synthesize the linguistic logical side with the emotional processing side, you are better able to perform multiple tasks at once. This must be why there are so many female drummers. Of course. Hang on. And obviously, if the mechanism you have for bridging that gap is not as big, you will simply not be able to multitask very well. This must be why there are so few male circus performers. And helicopter. Pilots. So, we've come a long way, but we're still kind of in the same place we were in the 18th century. And I feel it's important to say, it was about that time that they still used to drill holes into people's heads. Trepanning, it was called. The 18th century was actually known as the Trepan century, because scientists believed at the time it held much potential for curing both common and rare ailments. Supposedly, Drilling into your head would help to relieve pressure when you had a headache or another ailment in that area. So, holes in the head and bumps on the head. Those are the foundations, scientifically speaking, we're sitting on. Just saying. Now, as Gina Rippon points out in The Gender Brain, this is quite obviously a continuation of the same idea that they were discussing, rather seeking to prove, in the 18th century. Why are male brains different than female brains? Why are male brains better than female brains? Come on, someone must know. It goes to show, it's not where you're looking, what you're looking at, but how you're looking that matters the most. For example, transfer rates between left and right brains across the corpus callosum are faster in string players than in some of their fellow musicians. Piano players, for example because the hands of the string players are working in different ways to each other. One is focused on pitch, and one is focused on rhythm. So, if that's a violin player, one is holding the note on the fretboard, the long thin bit, and one is bowing the different strings around the wider part of the instrument, whereas piano players are activating pitch and rhythm at the same time with each hand. They may be playing bass with the left and treble with the right, higher and lower notes with each hand, but they are playing them in the same way, hitting the keys, the rhythm, to make a sound, the pitch. This lower level of corpus callus and transfer rate is present also in non-musicians or persons who don't perform activities that require that kind of unsymmetrical engagement that you have with a violin player. So what does that have to do with sex or gender? Well, I would argue that is clear evidence of neuroplasticity, that an individual has applied themselves to an activity and that the brain has responded, adapted in reaction to this. Unless there are string player brains, piano player brains, and neither of those things brains? Maybe there are. But seeing as there are men and women and those in between in all of those camps, 
that would mean that male and female brains don't really exist, right? So, I think to me, what this all boils down to, from a scientific perspective, is that the research into brains on the subject of sex and gender seems to show that you can't find concrete evidence for the need to discriminate on the basis of sex and gender in the first place. <laughs> That's it. What's the point of trying to find difference when there doesn't appear to be much of it in the first place? At the same time as they were regarding female brains to be inferior to male brains in the 18th century, they also thought the same about people who weren't white, people who were in prison, people of a lower class. It's a very important thing to keep in mind when looking at neuroscientific research that it was predicated in the first place upon a theory that has not yet been proven and the basic assumptions of which, males do this, females do that, are still being applied to with the research into neuroscience today. Why are women more emotionally in tune? Why are men better with structural issues? We have to get a study together to find this out. I keep iterating this point because you need to be aware of how the systems we exist within shape us. As a friend of mine, Michael, pointed out when we were talking a couple of weeks back about city planning and he was making the point that the way a city or a part of it is designed and built will influence how people can access and use it and for, for many reasons I really recommend you read Grayson Perry's fantastic book The Descent of Man and watch his series on masculinity on Channel 4. There's a chapter in the book and is also covered in one of the episodes of the Channel 4 series about Skelmersdale which is a small suburb of Liverpool which funnily enough is where my friend Michael is from. It was a part of uh, the, the suburbs of Liverpool that was designed in the 1950s with a sort of utopian vision where the four quadrants of the area would be interconnected and the workers could walk down these idyllic cobbled side streets as if they were in some hilltop town in Sicily to their places of work just nearby. What's actually grown from that is a pretty nightmarish reality where the narrow side streets are far from romantic hilltop visions a more an easy escape route for masked teenage boys with nothing to do, no job prospects, only a sense of a tribalistic life of crime and to protect the women in the area of skim. The point being, the way something is designed will affect how you use it. So, with gender and brains, the way gender is perceived, structured, will affect those who exist within those structures too. And if you believe in neuroplasticity, that will affect the structure of your brain as well. I wonder whether gender roles and ideas are a bit like skem, utopian ideals that limit us more than they free us and determine what we feel is possible within them. Are ideas of gendered brains sort of self-fulfilling prophecies? So, because our capabilities to examine the brain are infinitely better than we first became interested in it as a potential source for sexed and gender differences, should we forget it all entirely, as Gina Rippon would argue? The suggested superficial differences that were brought to the conversation all that time ago can we blame the brain for something we don't concretely know it's doing in the first place? Now, you can't have a conversation about gender differences in the brain without talking about schooling. And when it comes to gender in the classroom, people have some really strong opinions about this. Leonard Sachs of the National Association for Single-Sex Public Education is one of them. He asserts that English classes, for example, should be taught one way for girls and another for boys. Girls are asked when reflecting on a story how would you feel if? What is the emotional core at play here? Whereas boys might take study of the Lord of the Flies to the logical conclusion of making a map. Because according to Sachs' interpretation of neuroscientific research, the question of how would you feel if relies on bringing together emotional information from the amygdala and language information from the cerebral cortex. That's too much for boys to do. 
busy Corpus Callisum stuff. Leave the girls to do that emotional synthesizing stuff. The boys can strike out and wonder how it would feel to make a map. As Cordelia Fine points out, okay, fine. Separate your boys and girls. Or if you want to be really thorough, because there is overlap with these sex differences, strictly speaking, one should provide separate streaming for, say, large amygdalas and small amygdalas, or overactivated versus underactivated left frontal lobes. And now tell me how you tailor your teaching to the size of the amygdala, or to patterns of brain activity to a photo of a fearful face. Mike, drop. She argues that there is no reliable way to translate these brain differences into educational categories. We're back to musician versus non-musician brains again. In approaches to schooling, as with science, it does seem that the logic goes, We don't know enough yet, but we need to do something. So we'll keep on with the status quo we've had, not properly analyse it because it's been here for so long, and use these thoroughly basic, unwieldy ideas that don't really prove anything, even though we know they don't, because we have to do something. Think of the children. Or, I don't know, you could just treat every child as someone who can be taught and maybe listen to how they want to be taught. Rather than deciding because that one has a vulva, they must engage better with emotions. And because that one has a willy, that they must engage better with structure. It doesn't fit, unfortunately, with the desires and emotions we human beings seem to have to not do something, you know, to regard as inconclusive the evidence on brains and gender as we have it at the moment. We don't seem to be very good at it. We seem to be much better at- But I want to start a single sex education program now! I get it. I do. I know we can't just pull up the floorboards and start over from scratch. We want to move forward with what we have now. We have to, or at least we feel we have to, but you have to recognise that can be really damaging. You know, they used to perform intense operations on people without anaesthetic because they wanted to help and that was the best option at the time, though now I think we consider it pretty cruel, right? If we are aware of something that is hurting and damaging us all, whether kids or adults, can we strive for something better? Talking about schools and gender, it makes me think of a documentary I saw which was conducted at a school on the Isle of Wight. The researcher and presenter is Dr. Havid Abelmanhim, and the documentary for the BBC is called No More Boys and Girls, Can Our Kids Go Gender Free? The focus of the documentary was testing two classes, one where the class continues as it is, and the other where all of the elements of gendered separation are removed. No separation by gender, no gendered terms when the teachers were referring to the class, or at least they try to do this, there's a running total that's kept of the class's form tutor, kind of like a star system on the wall for every time you do something good. But in his case, it's for every time he says mate or love. Habits die hard, especially in a place that is as gendered as anywhere in terms of how it's structured. So the purpose of the study was to examine whether the way we interact specifically with boys and the way we interact specifically with girls is affecting the ways they behave, the ways they learn, how they see themselves. It's an absolutely fascinating watch and I believe you can watch it on YouTube if you don't have access to the BBC. Here are my main takeaways from the episodes. Boys and girls grow to have very different access to their emotions and what they feel is possible. One of the experiments that they, that they did was getting the kids to sit down, girls and boys, and asking them to talk about different emotions, to give different words for different emotions. Now, the girls were generally pretty good at this. They were able to give different words for the emotions that they felt, happy, sad, scared, whereas the boys were really crap. They were only able to give different words for anger. Boys and girls assess their own expected performance drastically differently. 
When presented with a strong man test, that's the literal name of the game, don't cancel me, the boys expected they'd hit 8, 9, 10, right to the top to get the ding. The girls expected maybe 4, 5, 6. In reality, many of the girls got very high scores or a full 10. And the most confident of all the boys who said he'd definitely get a 10 because he was a strong boy, stronger than all the girls, he couldn't get that elusive ding. And he had a meltdown because he only knows how to access his anger. Boys and girls buy into our idea of a gendered society and what's possible within it hard. I mean really hard. Whether it's what they think they could do as an adult or how well they think they do it. However, when you show them there are alternatives, they're able to adapt and change. Another one of the experiments they did was to put on a mini job fair with four careers being represented. Before the job fair took place, the boys and girls were asked to draw their impressions of what the representatives of the four careers might look like before they arrived. So the four were mechanic, firefighter, makeup artist and dancer. You guessed it. The mechanic and the firefighter were all drawn as men and the makeup artist and dancer all drawn as women. When they arrived, of course, they were contrary to the kids' expectations, but that didn't stop the kids really engaging with the little demos of what their career entailed and left many of them really open to the idea of doing a career they might never have thought possible based on their gender. But what about when the study is over? Will those non-gendered ideas take hold? Or was this experiment just a holiday from the norm for this primary school in the Isle of Wight? If they did say one of those where are they now documentaries in 40 years time, would the girls all be mechanics and firefighters and the boys all makeup artists and dancers. I guess that's the experiment we're living in right now. The theory on gendered brains asserts that through clear biological anatomical differences, we can map onto that clear mental, intellectual, and social differences that are hardwired. As Cordelia Fine asks in Delusions of Gender, can you imagine classrooms being segregated by race? As argued they should be by gender using neuroscience? Imagine a young alien visits Earth, on an intergalactic exchange program and is educated by the little humans at his host school on gender. They've never heard of this concept, gender. They don't have it in their alien culture. So the school provides a sort of gender guide to take the alien round and answer any questions that they may have about what they're seeing because all humans look the same to aliens. They really need help telling us apart. Stupid racist aliens. Anyway, you'd have questions like, oh. That one pushed over another person. That's being aggressive. So that's a man, yes? No, 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 no. She's a woman. Oh, okay. Well, she over there was very nice to that person there. She gave her a hand crossing the road. So she's a woman? No, no, no. That's a man. Oh, okay. Well, that person is wearing makeup and posing on a board. That must be a woman, yeah? No, 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 no. That's also a man. You're just making this all up. Stupid humans changing the rules all the time. Gender. Unfortunately, many studies around gender using neuroscience, where the claim is made that brains are in fact gendered, are hilariously poorly put together. I mean, that's quite fortunate for me, actually. And for you. I don't have a problem with doing research that aims to prove gender brains exist, but you've got to do it well. Luan Brizendine, for example, who's the director of the University of California, San Francisco Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic, ran a study of psychotherapists. This study found that therapists develop good rapport with their clients by mirroring their actions. Brizendine noted that all of the therapists who showed these responses happened to be women, though she failed to mention the fact that this was inevitable because only female therapists happened to have been recruited for the study. 
So the evidence happened to back up her aims because she happened to only study the gender that happened to be supposed to be good at mirroring in the first place. It just happened. There are numerous examples I've come across in my research which are, by contrast, very well set up in that they are directly comparing a test group while placed in a gender context with positive and negative associations either way and those who are in a test group where there is a sense of gender parity, a neutral situation. Consistently, those who are tested in a non-gendered test, for example, asking them to complete a maths problem where they've read an article before saying both men and women are equally good at maths, the results will be more equal and evenly distributed. When the reverse is related to the test participants before the maths problems are taken, that men are better or women are better, consistently, the gender that has been asserted as being worse at maths performs generally worse, and the gender that has been bigged up as super maths people performs generally better. I think the most astonishing finding by Cordelia Fine when looking into the work of Luanne Brizendine, Brizendine claimed to have had a personal communication with Harvard-based cognitive neuroscientist Lindsay Oberman, which prompted the claim, there may be a difference in male and female neuron functioning. This was a claim that Brizendine made. Now, neurons are essentially the processes in the brain that take in outside experience and stimuli and translate them into appropriate responses within the brain and body. Fine emailed Dr. Oberman to confirm this claim, that there may be such a thing as male and female neurons, only to hear back from her that Oberman had never communicated with Brizendine at all. Further to that, Oberman said that, having looked at her studies again, she found no evidence at all for better mirror neuron functioning in females. So, to put it simply, Brizendine made up a fact and backed it up with a made-up communication with someone who actually knows what they're talking about, who, when challenged on this communication, disagreed with her. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, this woman, Luanne Brizendine, is the director of the Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic in San Francisco. I, this is a leader in her field. This is someone who's being looked to for you know, insightful research and well put together reports and evidence that is going to advance our understanding of how men and women might be different around certain key topics. It's not like she's some, I don't know, amateur podcaster like me this is a leader in her field you know and it's often in this area of looking into the differences between men and women the apparent differences between male and female brains leaders of the field are making blundering errors and putting together really lazy reports i just feel it's important to note that fine continues there isn't just a simple one-to-one -one correspondence between brain regions and mental processes which can make interpreting imaging data a difficult task she quotes Jonah Lehrer from the Boston Globe, who writes, One of the most common uses of brain scanners, taking a complex psychological phenomenon and pinning it to a particular bit of cause, is now being criticised as a potentially serious oversimplification of how the brain works. As we've heard before, critics stress the interconnectivity of the brain, that essentially anything that occurs within the brain is not isolated, that the brain and its functions are intensely interrelated and therefore intensely complex. And despite all of this complexity, Scientists, neuroscientists, researchers, leaders of women's mood and hormone clinics, commentators are wading in with a preloaded label gun. And that label reads, this brain is male or this brain is female. Now, it's time for the part of the show I'm calling the gender lewd, the gender interlude, where you may hear some adverts of people trying to flog you some stuff to remind you, essentially, the listener, that you too are just a product, basically, and to help you transition through that rude awakening. I thought it'd be nice to have a bit of a chill pause, so you can go collect your thoughts, take a break, take a bathroom break, but only in the one that matches your genitalia, otherwise Lou and Brizendine will put you in an all-male study about vaginas, and I'll see you in a few. This podcast is supported via Patreon. 
If you go to patreon.com slash d-r-o-d-g-e, that's patreon.com slash drodge, you will find ways that you can support and get involved in this wonderful evolving community around gender. £2.50 a month will be a way to say thank you for the work you're doing, Rhea, I really appreciate it and I want you to keep doing it. And up to £5 a month will get you access to the community board where you can pitch in ideas about what this podcast can be and chat with other drodge heads about all that is gender. I went into HMV not too long ago and damn, it's changed a lot since I last went in there. It seems to become one of those shops that is forever closing down, but it's now also full of lots of touristy type things with Japanese lettering on the front and Marvel t-shirts. There's a conspiracy theory going around about why some of the most premium real estate in London has gone post-pandemic to become American candy stores that no one seems to be going into, where they're charging 16 pounds for a pack of sweets but that's only something you'd know if you ask because they don't have any prices on them. Is HMV just a front for stuff that fell off the back of the truck now? Anyway, they were doing two books for seven quid, which was two books for seven quid of really beautiful new copies. And I was drawn to one uh, for one of my choices. It's a big book called Behave, which sadly is not a drag queen's memoir, though it's not a million miles away in that how it challenges stereotypes around what it means to be a human. It's by Dr. Robert Sapolsky, remember him from the intro to Brains, Professor of Biology and Neuroscience at Stanford University. And this one passage really stuck out for me from the chapter wonderfully titled, Back to When You Were Just a Fertilized Egg. Back to when you were just a fertilized egg. Of all species, heritability scores in humans plummet the most when shifting from a controlled experimental setting to considering the species' full range of habits. Just consider how much the heritability score for wearing earrings with its gender split has declined since 1958. So, essentially, when you take a human out of the society it's born into, whatever that looks like and whatever core ideas it has, we see how truly flexible and changeable humans are, can be. And I think it encapsulates perfectly the problem with redefining what gender means to us, what human means and can be. The brain can only become fully ungendered when it is lifted from the waters of a society that is fully diluted with gender, from that thick gender soup we all eat, sleep and breathe in. Or if we somehow suck out the gender, if that's possible, or make what gender means much more fluid and open. To me, our prevailing ideas of gender seem to be those of a monkey who has got hold of a human brain and is several miles down the road with it. So it thinks, man strong, woman kind, man important, woman sort of. Only man and woman, only man and woman. To use Sapowski's image, when you were just an unfertilized, when you were just an unfertilized egg, you didn't know what gender was, what its rules and boundaries are. Even when you first arrived down the birth canal, you had no idea what boy or girl was but you'd find out quick enough. Susan Stryker says, Many feel gender to be like language. Though we have a biological capacity to articulate and express through the use of language, it is not hardwired or pre-installed. Gender is, I would argue, a human computer program that we forcibly install from an early age, from day dot. And just as all human bodies are modified, according to Stryker, by the shoes we wear, the food we eat, the substances we consume, the jobs we do, the places we live, the emotions that course through us, so are our brains. If we exist exclusively on a diet of gendered foods, we too will become gendered. It's all about perception, I feel. I remember a female biology teacher at a boarding school I was unfortunately sent to. I, not in the sense that it was it was a really terrible mistake. I mean, it was, but I, I actively chose to go there at the time and it became a very unfortunate series of events. 
and one of the class at this biology lesson when we were queuing outside I remember one of the class saying in hushed whispers as we queued you know she only got her doctorate because she knocked over a cup of coffee and found enzymes in the coffee now that's amazing sexism it's amazingly stupid logic that they're working with the implication is She's not actually clever enough to find something out on her own steam to discover something consciously. She has to rely on accident and presumably therefore the sense of what they're saying is that it's not her directly controlling her own research and career, it's the wisdom of the accident. She is simply a servant to circumstance. Or perhaps a man came and said, my god, those enzymes in that spilt coffee? I don't know Jeff, I'm just a woman. All I saw was some coffee on the paper after I did spilt it. But. Despite the 15-year-old's put-down, it's actually intensely perceptive and smart of her. She took an accidental occurrence, saw the presence of something that hadn't been perceived before, so had to both suspend disbelief and follow her curiosity that there might be something new here. And this is the way over the course of humans discovering things. An accident happens and something new is discovered in the wreckage of the aftermath. That's not to say that any old idiot can make a new discovery. Any old idiot can knock something over. But that in itself is not the discovery. It's the analysis of what has happened by accident. That is the discovery. That's how, for example, distortion was discovered. The musician Johnny Burnett's guitarist knocked over his amp by mistake. It ruptured some of the inner mechanisms and made this horrible sound, which he then decided to use as a new sonic tool. Could you discover distortion by accident? Would you just groan, fix the problem, or take it to the repair shops and go on as normal? Could you discover enzymes by accident? in a spilt cup of coffee. You'd have to know what you were looking for first. You'd have to know that it was something new, something unexpected. You'd have to be good at deduction and have good levels of knowledge and perception. You'd have to be keenly aware and inquisitive, both hallmarks of intelligence. Like Alexander Fleming, the inventor of penicillin. Fleming's discovery of penicillin occurred in 1928 when he was at the time investigating Staphylococcus. Staphylococcus, a common type of bacteria that causes boils and can also cause disastrous infections in patients with a weakened immune systems. So by accident, without premeditated effort, without a clear roadmap or idea of where he was going, he discovered one of the most important medical antibiotics. Should Fleming be ripped from the halls of celebrated scientists because he got to where he was by accident? I think we'd all agree, no. And the idea that you can only have success thrust upon you by accident, I don't know, that feels a bit close to the bone for a 15-year-old boy born into privilege mocking his female's teacher, standing in one of the most elite, expensive all-male schools in the country. Don't you think? Despite all we've covered so far, the science, neuroscience, and all the research and findings and theories amongst that, I believe the central idea in thinking around gender brains is actually an emotion. Because emotions are more powerful than logic. Evolutionarily speaking, they have been with us for longer. They are deeper within our brains. But, Ree, aren't reptilian brains logical? And therefore, in fact, they're more powerful in their control of us, deeper in us than the mammalian emotional part. Well, yeah, you could argue that. But I would argue the reptile doesn't know it's being logical. It just does. And that's not necessarily always logical. It's the human part, the cortex, that can synthesize emotion and translate into logic, or let it let let those things, emotion and logic, fight it out amongst themselves, all at once. Now, EQ or emotional intelligence is increasingly becoming more valued, certainly in the world of work, than IQ, intellectual intelligence. Emotions, generally speaking, I would argue, move us more than facts and figures. It's important to note, of course, that it's not binary. Nothing is. 
that you can't neatly divide emotions and physical facts. Because emotions are, themselves, facts. But you think about when you chat with a friend, or you go and see a gig, watch a film, have an interaction at work. What do you remember most? What was actually said, or how it made you feel? Did you feel empowered or hurt, inspired, bored, happy, sad by what was said or what happened? Or was it because of how it made you feel that you remember it? You may think you remember what was said most vividly because of what was said itself, but why can you remember it? Because it moved you, touched you, inspired you, scared you, angered you, delighted you? Or just because it was memorable? This is what the philosopher William James argued in his 1884 essay entitled What is an Emotion? And what he argued was that emotion is always the catalyst for action. And therefore, the emotion is the core, heart of everything that we do and experience. That emotion will always come before logic. So I guess the contention point here is, which part is stronger? And where is logic rooted and where is emotion rooted? It would be overly simplistic to say, as Dr. Sapolsky pointed out regarding a three-tiered system in the brain, that the human part is intellect and the mammalian part is emotion, because we know animals are highly capable of problem solving. Corvids, which are a type of bird, for example, are exceedingly clever and great at problem solving. So wherever emotion and logic are rooted, whichever comes first in reacting to and processing the world around us, I would argue that emotion is the stronger, absolutely. You only have to look at recent political campaigns for clear proof of this. Leave versus Remain, for example, in the UK in 2016. Ah, 2016. The time before the bad times. Now, with that campaign, the more emotional of the two causes, I would argue, is to leave. It's more active, it has more assertive connotations. Remain is weak and lacking in emotion, it sounds clinical. Don't worry, Deirdre, I will just remain here until something happens. I have elected to remain. Whereas, let's leave, this place doesn't work for us anymore. If we leave now, we can get somewhere better sooner. Come on, let's leave. That's more inspiring because it speaks to emotion, raw feeling, the charges that course through us, not to cold, hard logic. Let's remain, this place doesn't work for us anymore. If we remain now, we can get to somewhere better soon. Come on, let's remain. Look at Trump versus Clinton in the same year. Hillary Clinton's official slogan was Hillary for America, but she had others too. Big challenges, real solutions. Working for change, working for you. What was Donald Trump's? Make America great again. Now, what does that mean? Um, fuck knows. But I know what great means to me though. What America means to me. I mean, I want that, I want that feeling. Now, I'm not saying Trump supporters were stupid, I'm saying Trump's campaign was smarter. What was Hillary's comparable slogan? The strength and experience to make change happen. Well, I feel a lot after that. Just need a moment. Look at gender. What names do we use to refer to ourselves and others? Male and female? No, those are clinical, cold, emotionless names reserved for scientists and doctors and psychoanalysts. We tend to use boy and girl, man and woman, guys and dolls, blokes and birds, because these inspire emotion, feeling within us, as well as logic, ideas connected with those terms. Interestingly, we're still figuring out gender-neutral terms, and as a result, they can sound very clinical, because I would argue the emotion behind those words is still being figured out. Person, sibling, child, partner, they used to refer to people generally, therefore were less emotionally strong, but now they can also refer to one person and therefore potentially hold more and stronger emotions. More on that in future episodes.
If we can apply then an emotion to the case of gender and brains in neuroscience scientific research, specifically the brain organization theory, I feel it's the feeling that we are ultimately unable to shape those around us, that we are powerless. And that emotion speaks to me as a desire for safety, a fear of things being out of control, that the people that are directing this research are afraid of the world being beyond their comprehension. So to assert that a brain's gender is predetermined is to instantly make sense of the world, to believe that the way it is, is as it should be. And hey, I totally understand that. I have compassion for that. My worldview too is driven by an emotion and I suppose for me it is a similar fear that drives it. That the world is out of my control, that its influence on me is, is out of my control. So that may be true, but I am certainly within my own control to a degree. In fact, to a very large degree, I would argue. I can decide how to respond with the information and awareness available to me. I can decide how to regard myself, how to process what I've experienced, how to move forward, which things and people to seek out. And I find it much more inspiring to believe that my brain is malleable and that I can play a crucial part in shaping it further. And there is more and more research into the quantum physics elements of how our brains works, that the universe is made of energy and frequencies and that our brains also work on the same logic. Go look into the work of Dr. Joe Dispenza, for example. But of course, you know, an inspiration around feeling that the brain is malleable, that doesn't equal fact, sadly. At this point in the episode, I do have to say, I do find it so odd that we do this, that we look for gender and clear difference based on sex, essentially. Physical differences. And sex is such a fragile difference why hang on to that as the most definitive divider in society? Looking into gender in the brain, the field of neuroscience as a whole, separate from gender or anything else, it's fascinating and worthy research to be doing. I find it fascinating to explore, tantalising that the key to understanding ourselves may lie in a certain corner of our thought sacks. Obviously that's why we're doing this episode and I'm loving it, but would we apply the same logic to the liver, the, the kidneys? Can you have a gendered stomach, gendered hands maybe? Yes, they may be physically, anatomically different, but does that mean that the person that wields them is fundamentally the same as anyone else with comparable features? Why build something so big from something so slight? As we do with race, where we're born, geographical location, and money. I can't get away from this sense that saying we are so different inherently, that boys and girls just are from a young age. To me, it's like growing a square watermelon, right? In a square container, as they do in Japan, and then saying, well, I just wanted to be a square, what are you gonna do? That may not be a very scientific comparison to draw, but if we're telling boys and girls to be boys and girls, and that's what they become, don't we need to examine and question that? It makes me think of the example of the five monkeys experiment, which goes like this. A researcher puts five monkeys in a cage where there are a bunch of bananas dangling down, accessible via a ladder. The first monkey goes to get the bananas and the researcher turns on a spray of water from above, which falls on the monkeys for five straight minutes, soaking them all to their monkey skin. Once the water's been turned off, some time passes, and then the second monkey goes to get the bananas via the ladder. The researcher again turns on the water and soaks the monkeys for a further five minutes. From this point, the researcher turns off the water supply completely, so the monkeys can't be covered in water again, even if they go for the bananas. Soon, the third monkey does just that, and rather than being soaked from above, the other four attack the third monkey and stop them from climbing the ladder. Evidently, they are afraid of what will happen should the third monkey try to get the bananas. The researcher then replaces one of the monkeys with a new monkey, who has no prior knowledge of anything that's been going on. New monkey looks around 
at the other monkeys, the cage, the ladder, and the bananas. Bananas, New Monkey thinks, and starts to climb the ladder. To New Monkey's surprise, the other monkeys start to attack New Monkey and cut off access to the ladder. New Monkey is confused, completely dry, and without bananas. The researcher then replaces another of the original monkeys with a second New Monkey. New Monkey number two thinks, bananas, and tries to climb the ladder. All the monkeys, including New Monkey number one, then stop New Monkey number two from getting the bananas. Now, New Monkey number one was never sprayed with water, remember, so doesn't really know what's going on, but enthusiastically joins in stopping New Monkey number two from getting the bananas. Eventually, the researcher has replaced all five of the original monkeys with new monkeys who have never seen a drop of water in that cage, only the ladder, the other monkeys, and the bananas. Still, with each new monkey that comes in, each new monkey who thinks bananas and goes to climb the ladder, the other four block access to the ladder with vicious intensity. If the researchers had the power to talk to the five newest monkeys, who had no awareness of the original experiment with the water, to ask them why they blocked any monkey who tried to climb the ladder to get the bananas, they imagine the monkeys might say, because that's the way it's always been done. Now, there's many things you can apply that to, whether it's politics or business, office practices, relationships, families. To me, it's particularly relevant to gender and illustrates the problem anyone who investigates gender in any great depth has, because we are investigating systems that have been that way for so long that no one can really un remember or unpack why. No one's fucking seen a banana for thousands of years, and anyone like me who's trying to climb that ladder and get that banana that signifies gender liberation and exploration, oh no, they'll make me wish I was a monkey. So, yes, I acknowledge it's a very difficult task. But we will get there. Bananas! And it's also important to remember that the brain and our understanding of it is ever-evolving and moving forward. As I said earlier, neuroscience is a very young science. And that what the brain is and is capable of is also ever-evolving and moving forward. Because we are, so are our brains. Or because our brains are, so are we. If you believe in neuroplasticity, that is. Now, looking at study into meditation and how it affects the brain, this is a really fascinating area of research and I feel it's particularly revealing as to how brains are fluid, impressionable things. I mean, I've seen studies that claim that men have more grey matter and women more white matter and we're going to talk about what those things are exactly in a moment. A study by the University of California, Irvine from 2005 stated women have more white matter and men more grey matter related to intellectual skill. Now it has been revealed through increased scientific study into meditating that you can actually grow more grey matter in your brain. Put most simply, it seems that grey matter receives and processes information and is located on the outer part of the brain being grey because it is more dense in neurons, and that the white matter is concerned with transmitting the signals prompted by the processed information around the body. So grey matter is the translator and white matter is the messenger, basically. If we can be basic with the brain. So this means that through meditation, you can literally grow your brain's ability to be more aware of what's around you, to be more self-aware and to take on greater experiences and stimuli. So going back to gender, if brains can grow and change with the simple impact of breathing more deeply and more often, how much can they change by existing in a world that tells them that the body in which they exist and the way it's perceived must mean their brain is and acts a certain way? If a female brain, supposedly having more white matter as a general rule, can by meditating and being more mindful grow more grey matter, what does that say for male brains? 
Does the female brain become more male the more grey it grows? Or is the bigger picture of grey and white matter saying something else entirely? So just because you observe a difference in physiology, that doesn't mean that that difference will be borne out in practice. For example, person A is taller than person B. You might then deduce that person A will be better at jumping than person B, fair assumption. But that doesn't take into account what is actually required to perform the task of jumping, or if person A even wants to jump, whether person A has grown with a positive or negative attitude towards jumping. It also doesn't take into account the fact that the same result can be reached via different means. So yeah, this is a very simplistic example, and perhaps even a little bit naive, but is it perhaps more simplistic and more naive to assert that because a male brain is structured in a certain way, that it will inherently and consistently outperform a female brain in certain tasks? It just seems needlessly reductive to put nature before everything else when we don't even know what nature truly is because nature plays such an early, crucial, continuing part. If human beings were defined by nature alone, we never would have left the jungle. Nurture is vastly important, I feel. It cannot make a five-foot person into a seven-foot giant, but it can teach them how to jump fucking high. I feel again, Cordelia Fine puts this best. She writes, It's important to point out that this is not a starry-eyed environmentalist, we can all be anything we want to be viewpoint. Genes don't determine our brains or our bodies, but they do constrain them. The developmental possibilities for an individual are neither infinitely malleable nor solely in the hands of the environment. But the insight that thinking, behavior, and experiences change the brain directly or through changes in genetic activity seems to strip the word hardwiring of much useful meaning. As neurophysiologist Ruth Blayer put it over two decades ago, we should view biology as potential, as capacity, and not as static entity. Biology itself is socially influenced and defined. It changes and develops in interaction with and response to our minds and environment, as our behaviours do. Biology can be said to define possibilities, but not determine them. It is never irrelevant, but it's also not determinant. So, Biology defines what is possible, but it does not entirely determine who it is possible for. Traditional views of gender and brains would say it does, and point to statistics of more men in management positions, more men in prison, and more women in social care jobs, more women reporting bulimia and anorexia. This poses so many questions to me. The culture you're raised within, what your diet is, what and who you interact with, the experiences you have, whether positive or traumatic, as well as pre-existing hereditary conditions within your family, passed down trauma and stress, how do these affect your brain development and by relation, your gender expression? For example, shame in children is directly linked to stunting brain development. I worked in a special school where we had a talk from a specialist on this subject and the case study of one boy came up in the school uh, which showed that intense levels of shame throughout his childhood had put his learning age at closer to four years old when he was actually about 12 years old in human years. I remember trying to help him read in a one-to-one -one lesson using a tablet and whenever he'd struggle to make sounds or fluid sentences, he would just scrunch his face up into an angry red ball, completely disengage and disassociate, and get up and start knocking things over or hitting things. The shame of not knowing made his brain shut down. I feel neurodivergency, as exhibited at special schools like the one I worked at, and gender diversity, that they are linked because they are perceived in the same way as going against the default setting that brains are supposed to have. Simon Baron-Cohen, who's no relation to Sasha Baron-Cohen, argues that neurodivergency is the last frontier and that ideas around certain brains being less than or different are holding back kids and adults with autism, ADHD and other so-called divergences. Ironically, 
Simon Baron Cohen also heads an institute that researches into gender differences in children and very much believes that those gender differences do exist. You can't win them all, can you? Why have neurodivergence been treated with suspicion over time, much like gender divergence are being treated uh, today, like they're making it up? That before they're diagnosed, they're just odd, strange, unfortunate, difficult. You don't have ADHD, you're just hyper and difficult. You're not autistic, you're just emotionless and insular. Fortunately, that kind of response is much less common these days, but you know, it's still really ingrained in society. Neurodivergency invalidates the meritocracy of neurotypicalism. There's a bunch of words, so let's break that down. If you operate on a system that is separate, a separate system of logic, i.e. that you're neurodivergent outside of the perceived norm, then the neurotypical logic no longer applies. So any sense of value in their system, the perceived neurotypical norm, having a so-called normal brain, default setting, that feels threatened. Same with gender. If you don't abide by the rules, you threaten those who do. Those who do abide by the rules perhaps resent subconsciously the sense that someone's coming along and doing whatever they want. What about the rules? What about the fairness of the game? Except they know the game isn't fair to begin with. They know if they're being really honest, and yes, I admit that's fucking hard sometimes for any of us to be really honest with ourselves. If they're really being honest, the game has put them, a neurotypical, several paces ahead of a neurodivergent before the race has even started, before the game has even begun. Also, if you do win, as a neurodivergent, as someone outside of the accepted norm, there will always be a sense of a little asterisk being applied. Oh, you only won that because you've got insane focus on certain subjects because you're autistic. That's not fair. The whole fucking system's not fair, mate. We literally have a valued hierarchy system around how we perceive the world and rules and games and codes and narrow pathways to go along with it. And why should rules and games be applied to someone's individual expression, whether that's brain functions or gender? I think we'll find that eventually that everyone is neurodivergent, that's my feeling, and that quote-unquote normal was a concept made to make people feel better about themselves. That by buying into this idea that there's normal, the desirable aim, and not normal, the undesirable perversion of that, so long as you work to keep within the box marked normal, you're pretty much okay. And you keep the lie alive when really some were just better at hiding their weirdness than others, or that some were more invested in the concept of appearing normal so that they couldn't be othered or ostracized, so that they could get ahead, succeed, dominate. And it's harder to dominate when people are all just individuals, isn't it? You know, rather than binary groups. The sense is that I'm normal, therefore I'm morally good and more likely to succeed. That's the assumption. I may not be as good perhaps as the most norm of all the normals, Normus Maximus, but I'm certainly better than the freaks over there, aren't I? The sense that there is a, a norm, a default, and a perversion or divergence from that is, again, a binary falsehood. Binaryism is a falsehood, in, in my opinion, as, as, as you're getting so far. But what about left and right, you might say? Depends where you're standing, doesn't it? Up or down? Same answer. Good and bad? Again, it depends on where you're looking from. It's all a matter of perspective. It's all on a spectrum. It's all circular. This makes me think of Eddie Izzard's wonderful analogy about looking cool and groovy, if you've not heard it. That it's a circle. You start off looking cool and groovy, looking cool and groovy. Oh, you're really, really nice with that feather boa and that hat and those funky shoes. And you push to the edges of the circle. Oh, and you're looking like a dickhead. Looking cool and groovy, cool and groovy. You're in the hipster vein. You're in the hipster vein. You've got the low shoes and the, and the white socks and the little beanie hat and everything. You're looking cool and groovy. Oh, you're looking like a dickhead. Same with politics. I mean, you know, not the looking like a dickhead part necessarily, but that's, that's your call. 
People have been surprised in recent years at anti-lockdown marches to see so-called crusty hippies next to hardcore right-wingers. Well, not everything's linear. Not everything's either over here or over there. Because there is here and here is there depending on where you're standing. There is here and here is there depending on where you're standing. Now, this may all sound like word soup, but it does get to the core of what is becoming more and more apparent to me in everything. It's not a binary choice. And this, I think, is the crux of it. The emotion at the heart of this podcast about brains and gender. Confusion. Utter fucking word soup confusion. Not gender confusion. Good old fashioned confusion. Of all the parts of the human anatomy that you pick to back up your idea that gender differences exist and are clear, you choose the brain, the most mysterious unmapped part of the human experience. It's like playing hide and seek at the bottom of the ocean. That game could go on literally forever. You never find each other again. Or you might find some weird prehistoric fish that looks like a pussy hat. You, you, you're going into practically uncharted territory where what may seem to be one thing could easily be something you've never seen before, can't understand, may never understand because it lives in darkness. And people are coming back up to the surface with their high-tech gear and sense of learnedness proclaiming, this weird fish here proves that gender is real. See, look, I found it on a screen with wires and shit. And because we, the average thinker-observer, not blessed with an understanding of the world of neuroscience, think, oh, okay, that must be true. You see some blobs lighting up on a screen, imaging of the brain, hear somebody make an assertion or claim and go, ooh, that's interesting. Look at them blobs. Did not tell you, John, that's just the way it is. There's a term for this, actually. The taking of data and research from neuroscience and taking it well beyond any rational conclusion based on what we actually know about brains, which seems to be very little. It's called blobology. Look, some blobs. Often that means it's a girl brain. Blobs. So saying that gender is binary, to me, is a bit like saying colour is binary. That all colours are essentially varying shades of two primary colours. Now, you can frame it that way if you want. We do have primary colours, but there's even three of those. But my point is, why be so needlessly reductive? It just seems to oversimplify things. We all know there are many, 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 many colours. Colours that perhaps we can't even perceive. Plurality is in everything. We know this in every area of human life. Politics is a prime example where two diametrically opposed behemoths are seen as being the only viable options in many countries, except for the Lib Dems or the Greens or the Libertarians, whatever your country's flavour of dietary alternatives are. But they're not real contenders, right? They're just closeted lefties or righties. Surely. It's like in the Simpsons episode when the aliens Kang and Kodos impersonate the contestants for the 1996 US election, Bill Clinton and Bob Dole, and eventually then out themselves on inauguration day. A man stands up amidst the horror of the revelation that both his choices are just as awful and cries, I'm gonna vote for a third party candidate. And Kang and Kodos just laugh. <laughs> And then the third party candidate is pictured punching through his boater hat in frustration. I feel you, mate. Coming back to Cordelia Fine in Delusions of Gender, she writes, Bear in mind that neuroscientists are still quarrelling over the appropriate statistical analysis of highly complex data. Recall that the many sex differences in the brain may have more to do with brain size than sex per se. Remember that psychology and neuroscience, and the way their findings are reported, are geared towards finding difference, not similarity. Male and female brains are, of course, far more similar than they are different. Not only is there generally great overlap in male and female patterns, but also the male brain is like nothing in the world so much as a female brain. Neuroscientists can't even tell them apart at the individual level, so why focus on difference? The idea that people have either a female 
or male brain is an old one, says Daphna Joel at Tel Aviv University in Israel. The theory goes that once a fetus develops testicles, they secrete testosterone that masculinizes the brain. If that were true, there would be two types of brain. Joel and her colleagues attempted to test this theory by comparing brain scans of 1,400 people aged between 13 and 85. What they were looking for was variations in the size of certain brain regions, as well as the connections forged between them. A total of 29 brain regions were identified, which as a general rule, seem to be different sizes in male brains and female brains respectively. These regions include the hippocampus, lector memory, and the inferior frontal gyrus, which is speculated to affect risk aversion. Looking at each individual brain scan, it was found that very few of the 1400 people tested had all the brain features you might expect them to have, taking their sex into account. Across the study, between 0 to 8% of people had a brain that was either all male or all female. Most brains, the other 90% or so, had brains that were somewhere in the middle, on a spectrum of all male and all female. So, at least according to this study, Gender is indeed, in the brain, on a spectrum. On the subject of the 0-8% of tested participants, this of course relies on how you define all male or all female, doesn't it? What is the gender gold standard? Which begs the question, if it is so hard to figure out what is an essentially male quality and what is an essentially female quality, why are we even applying those parameters in the first place? If it was very simple to determine in the brain, then sure, the effort would be merited. But neuroscience's understanding of the brain as a whole is so much in its infancy as we've been learning, that asking it as a scientific practice to be applied forensically, surgically, when it is nowhere near that precise or accurate yet, it, it, I don't know, it feels insane. Like trying to use a crane to perform open heart surgery. Left a bit, right a bit, oh I've not done the hospital. Is he still alive? How can you be sure and declare confidently? That bit there, yeah, yeah, yeah. That bit there, that's a male bit. You, you could see it's shaped like a hammer. That, that, that bit there, uh, it's shaped like a flower. That's a female bit. Yeah, it's a female, isn't it? It feels an endeavor for the scientific community that is never going to succeed, or at least not until the technology is much, much more advanced. Which begs the question, why are they trying to succeed in the first place? And you have to lean towards the answer because it is in the interest of society to believe that males and females are inherently different, that they are wired differently, that a male is Microsoft and a female is Apple. He's an Xbox and I'm more Atari. And why is it in the interest of society to believe that? That we can speculate on and you can draw your own conclusions. But for me, it is because it is in the interest of preserving a system that we all rely on to understand society and ourselves. And because it's what we're used to, and what we're used to feels safe. Limited ideas around sex and gender, and what we're not used to, a broader understanding of sex and gender, that doesn't feel safe. However, to me, that limited system, however safe it feels for some, is polluted, corrupt, and unfairly treats both sides. This of course means, according to Joel's study at the Tel Aviv University, that sex differences do exist in brain makeup, but an individual brain is itself so different from any other brain as to be a mixture of all possible brain features. Possible brain features that we still know very little about, whether they are male or female or phlegmanoscopic or phlegmanoscopic. These are not scientific terms. But who knows, maybe that blob on the brain scan is exactly that, whatever that means. As Marcus Hausman from Durham University in the UK says, he isn't surprised by the findings. Across all kinds of spatial skills, we find very, very few that are sensitive to sex. We have also identified spatial problems where women outperform men. The black and white idea of a male and female brain is clearly too simple. Meg John Barker at the Open University in Milton Keynes says, we need to start thinking a lot more carefully about how much weight we give to gender as a defining feature of human beings and stop asking for it in situations where it simply isn't relevant. So 
When a sizable proportion of the scientific community who study our brains are telling us that that thing we think is inherently in us isn't really there, you really have to ask why we are so insistent on telling ourselves that it is in us, and not only that, that it is in everything in our society and should govern our every move. Why would we perpetuate that idea? Why would we keep it going? I think perhaps the most compelling of all examples all studies looked at here and in my research is the Implicit Association Test, or IAT, developed by social psychologists Anthony Greenwald, Mazarin Banaji, and Brian Nozek. This test asks participants to pair words or pictures that sit in a category. In relation to gender, that might be relating female names to certain words, and the same with male names. It was found through this implicit association test that participants of both genders typically found it easier to associate female names with communal words, such as connected or supportive, and found it easier also to associate male names with agentic words, active and independent words, such as individualistic and competitive. So, to do the perceived opposite, to pair Jane with individualistic or competitive and John with connected and supportive, literally causes a delay in the brain. A brain fart to use the technical term. The brain cannot instantly compute what you're trying to do, it cannot relate the name with the word, so it stutters, it blips. And I think, if we are unable to define anything else from this last hour or so, if all else has been totally wasted, whether gender's just in us or it's learned, we can at least describe clearly that that little blip in the brain is prejudice, sexism, proof of gendered learning. So, we're at the end of this look at B for Brains. And I feel there are three different conclusions you can draw from this episode, where we've looked at different takes on what makes a brain and whether that brain is gendered or not, a lot gendered, a little gendered, not gendered at all. Of course, it's not a binary, a trinary, you can take from it what you want. Of the three I see, firstly, you can conclude that gender is barely present or even entirely absent from our brains, and that the gendered systems and divides we have set up are not based on anything, but that they are artificial, completely made up, and so we should dispense with gender altogether. Or you can conclude that, yes, there is no clear evidence for gender actually being an observable fact in human beings, but human beings have clearly invented it out of a need to operate within a gendered system, so we can keep using it as we need to, whilst recognising that it is not as clear-cut as that, that it is not hardwired within us. Or you can conclude that brains are essentially male or female, and that any route we take, whether to carry on as we are, or to try to reform those gendered brains to make equality more possible and widespread, any of those paths will be dictated by nature and its pre-hardwired gendered state. The conclusion is yours, and whatever you conclude, I think we can all agree that we want a world where males, females, and everyone in between, and beyond, deserves a fair chance at a full and happy life, and mutual respect throughout. Whatever's in their brain. Whatever their brain is. I want to take this last moment to shout out some of my favourite podcasts on the subject of gender and LGBTQI plus issues. You've heard lots from the neuroscientific community around brains and gender, please go and check those out. But please also go and check out the podcasts Gender Reveal, LGBTQ&A, We're Having Gay Sex, and for YouTube audiovisual people, go check out ContraPoints as well. All of these are independent channels and independent channels are freer with what they can do compared to corporate back channels but they need your help to do what they're doing, to keep doing what they're doing. So consider supporting them via Patreon, buying their merch, following and reviewing them online, going to their shows, sharing their work online, just shouting about independent creators you love at every available opportunity. Because an independent creator is, I would argue, better for all of us, because independent creators are part of the creative community, part of society, and actively invest back in society, communicate with society, rather than picking and extracting from on high like some arcade grabber of doom. Support independent creatives. And I'll see you next week, Drodgeheads. Drodgecast is a production by Barosh Voices, 
for Drudge. A label without labels. Imagine that.